I'm six foot two. I didn't choose to be, this, that's sort of the not that tall side of tall. Like there's like the seven feet guys. I had a roommate that was like six eight, one of the first people I actually had to look up to, like physically. Like, so that's not used to that. Leanne and I uh, were unevenly height matched. Uh, I think we figured out she was standing on a chair and I was looking up at her. It's like, oh, is this, what this, this is what it normally looks like. She had to go that much, that much higher. But with great height comes great responsibility. Like the glasses at the top of the shelf. You know, I don't need a stool for those type of things. And so my mom, my sisters, now my wife and, and children, um, they, were, they, they looked to me, you know, <laughs> because of my height to reach things. But I didn't choose to be six foot two. Neither did you. Jesus talked about the fact we can't add or take away an inch uh, from our height, there's certain ways that God has ordained are things that are going to be true of us. And then we do have a responsibility based off of those things, but height is not the content of the sermon this morning. Instead, I want to ask you this question. Are you rich? Are you rich? As Paul comes to the conclusion of this letter, 1 Timothy, he's passing on to Timothy specific instructions uh, for a specific group of people, the, those who are called the rich. If this text, as other texts, were written to widows, then if you were a widow, uh, then you would probably pay more attention, more careful attention than non-widows, right? If this were a text, as many in 1 Timothy have been, written to elders, uh, then elders, we would need to pay more careful attention than non-elders. It doesn't mean Everybody else checked out. Uh, you paid good attention through these different things, even if your specific group, as it were, were not addressed in the text. Uh, but the specific group of people that Timothy is to address are called the rich in this present age. And so the question for each of us to ask at the outset of reading this passage is, am I rich? Am I rich? And I think for most of us, the gut reaction to this is an obvious no accompanied by some laughter. <laughs> rich. Of course, I'm not rich. Have you seen so-and-so's house or their car? They're rich, not me. Uh, perhaps we need some clarification. I think there are perhaps three categories or levels into which people fall, each of which can be identified by answering one question. Do you have what you need right now? Do you have what you need right now. Need is another word we have to define. That's why it's in yellow. So I want to use Paul's earlier definition of contentment from 1 Timothy 6, 8. A few weeks ago, we covered this, where he said, if we have food and clothing, with these, we will be content. Content. Uh, satisfied. This, this is what I need. So do you have what you need right now? And the three categories as it relates to riches or being rich, in answer to this question, uh, three answers. Do you have what you need right now? N answer one, no. I, I do not have enough. Uh, answer number two would be yes, I have just enough. Right? My, my uh, income meets my expenses or uh, my supply equals my need. Need of me and my, my family whoever you're taking care of. And then the third would be, yes, I have more than enough to meet my needs. I do not have enough. I have just enough. I have more than enough. I think the clearest definition of, of rich would be number three. Yes, I have 
more than enough to meet my needs. And I think this message meshes, excuse me, with the, how the word rich uh, used in this passage has been defined uh, like this, having an abundance of earthly possessions that exceed, exceeds normal experience. Now, you can have a baseline of average, and this would be above average. I think that, that meshes how we would use the word rich, right? Uh, landowners in the first century, those who could inf- afford employees to do work for them would also kind of fall into this. Uh, there are also more opulent examples of this word used as Jesus gives uh, a story or describes a man who was dressed, a rich man, dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. So we added luxury to that, right? The church in Laodicea in Revelation described themselves as rich and they're rebuked by Christ. Revelation chapter three, he described their attitudes and their thinking this way. So Jesus is writing in condemnation of them, right? Chastisement and rebuke. And he says this, you have said, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. I don't need anything. Really where that comes to is I don't need you because I have wealth. Jesus makes that comparison too, right? Love God or love money or riches. I have more than enough. I have an abundance. I have gathered extra for myself as another rich man in one of Jesus' stories says. I am dependent on no one. These are statements of riches. For most of us, I think we are not rich according to our culture's standards. I think that's, that's fair. As you think about the spectrum of riches in the United States of America, there's all that talk about the 1% or the 1% of the 1%. I don't think any of you fall into that category. But we are very clearly rich in comparison to most people throughout human history and the majority of the world's population. No question that we are rich by that standard. We woke up, uh, unless something happened to your HVAC unit, We woke up in temperature-controlled houses with clean, running water, cold and hot. We chose our outfits among a variety of options. We ate food for breakfast that we probably did not farm, exception noted for chicken farmers. And you drove in a vehicle to this gathering. To be safe, let's all assume this text does apply to us, that we are rich, rather than assuming that it does not apply to us. Let's read this text, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. And uh, again, assume you're rich, and this applies. <laughs> and may the Holy Spirit teach us. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Note Paul's description here, right at the outset of verse 17, who Timothy is to be talking to. It's Paul commanding Timothy to command the rich, and you see the other phrase here, the rich in this present Age. This helps us from the start set the stage for not loving riches or money or treasures 
uh, which is the danger Paul warned about back in verse 10, the love of money, love of riches, love of treasures, love of possessions, right? We could put in all sorts of different synonyms there. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So there's a danger that he's been warning about. Money, riches, possessions, treasures, all of those things that the love of which is a, is a road to more dangers, more sins. All these things have an absolute limit on them. Not like you can only earn so much, right? I mean, it used to be millionaires were a big deal. Now billionaires are a big deal. And then the way the dollar's going, maybe trillionaires is a, is a big deal. Uh, all of these things, they exist only in this present age. All of it. Whatever your definition of riches is, all of it exists only here and now. This present world. And this present world is not all there is to our existence. This is not it. There is another age or another world, the age to come. The comparison between the two is quite simple. This age is limited and coming to an end. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, the present form of this world is passing away. But that age, that world is eternal and permanent and ultimate. Our life here is like a vapor, a breath that you can see on a cold morning. It appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Our life there will not be a breath it appears for a little while and vanishes away. Our life there will have no end. So right at the beginning, Paul wants us to start thinking and asking ourselves, which world or which age am I living for? Now, as we, before we go any further, I want to introduce you to a few important New Testament characters. Uh, women like Joanna or Susanna man named Lazarus with his sisters Mary and Martha, Joseph of Arimathea, uh, the Pharisee Nicodemus that we heard read about this morning, the centurion Cornelius, the merchantess Lydia from Philippi, the disciple Barnabas from the Gospels and Acts. Do you know what each of these characters had in common? These real people? They were wealthy. They were all rich. Not only that, they were all commended or praised uh, directly or indirectly in how they're presented in scripture, all praised for how they used their wealth to serve Christ and or his people. That's really important because there's an interpretation of, of life and then being forced into an interpretation of scripture that would say all wealth and all property ownership is evil and oppressive. And those who hold that interpretation would want this text in 1 Timothy 6 and all texts to condemn the rich, like that you cannot be a rich believer, a rich follower of Christ. They would say that's an oxymoron, right? Those are, those are necessarily contradictory. That's not what scripture says. They would want to order, they would want this text, all texts, to order the rich to distribute their wealth to others, because according to them, a truly just society would not have both rich and poor people. Yet, we have clear examples in both testaments of righteous, wealthy people and the permanent reality of the poor. What did Jesus say? The poor you will always have with you, right? Until all riches pass away. 
So we, have, we also, though, have examples, ample examples of unrighteous wealthy people, the extorting tax collector Zacchaeus before he met Jesus, the rich man who ignored the other Lazarus, the, the poor, uh, impoverished beggar Lazarus, the rich man who built himself bigger barns, the Pharisees who are said to have loved money. And in that story about Barnabas, we have two other characters, Ananias and Sapphira, also wealthy, also landowners, and they sold a piece of land like Barnabas had. Barnabas is commended for selling land and giving the proceeds of that to the apostles to distribute to needy believers. Ananias and Sapphira liked that. Uh, They liked the praise. Uh, They also liked money. So they sold their land and said, this is how much we got for it. Let's say $5,000. Well, they got $10,000 for it. Again, I'm making up numbers here. They got $10,000 and they said to the apostles, we got $5,000, here's all of it. Uh, and the Holy Spirit killed them. Uh, let's not love money, <laughs> and let's not lie about it, uh, and conspire to try to be something that we're, we're not. Uh, you also have the rich condemned by James in his epistle for abusing the poor and refusing to pay their workers. So you have righteous, wealthy people, and you have unrighteous, wealthy people. We also have righteous, poor people, and unrighteous poor people, okay? So we need to have biblical uh, uh, concepts, biblical definitions, not uh, worldly definitions we force onto that. Let's allow scripture to guide us. So just as every rich person's not wicked, neither is every rich person righteous. So this results in the need of this text. There are rich, rich believers, faithful to Christ, in the church, I would contend in this church right now. So, how can a rich person honor Christ? It's not by becoming poor, right? Because you have examples of wealthy believers throughout the New Testament. And Paul's instructions here are not, they don't actually even match what, what Christ said. And we believe scripture is united, so it's not a contradiction of Jesus said every rich person needs to give up all of his wealth and be poor and follow me. And Paul's like, no, 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 that's not necessary. Right? Jesus is making a point to specific individuals, and maybe you, Maybe you do need to shed your wealth, give it away uh, to be a more faithful follower of Jesus. Maybe you don't. I'll let the Spirit lead you in the way that he would. But how can a rich person honor Christ? So if you are rich, we're assuming that we are, how can you honor Christ with your wealth? That's the body of this text and the, the meat, uh, as it were, of our sermon. Honoring Christ while rich. As for the rich in this present age, charge them... What? First, it says not to be haughty, which I've just said, don't be arrogant. You're rich. How do you honor Christ while rich? First, don't be arrogant because you're rich. Just because you have more than someone else by inheritance or by hard work, that doesn't make you better than them. It doesn't make you better than them. You may be a harder worker. You may be smarter or wiser with your spending, but you are not a better human being than someone who does not have as much as you, whatever that reason might be. And believing or acting otherwise is to be haughty or arrogant toward the poor. A larger income or a higher standard of living also doesn't mean that you're a better husband or wife or parent than someone else. This person can't meet their children's needs like I meet my children's needs. Therefore, I am a better parent than them. Don't be arrogant. Right? That's not all there is. All of these type of assumptions, they're haughty, they're arrogant. We could ask you this, could it be that all the extra hours that you are 
at work to earn that larger income, to provide all those extra things for your children that make you a better parent? Could it be that all those extra hours are unnecessarily keeping you away from your spouse and your children? Could it be that you are actually less faithful and less righteous in earning than those that you would look down on because they can't provide as nice of X, Y, or Z? Maybe. Maybe not. In our culture, many cultures, probably money equals power and privilege. It's just, it's just a reality of living in a sinful world. If you have power or authority over someone, I'm not saying that power equals evil. It's just a reality of those different things taking place. If you have a power or authority over someone, maybe it's because of your riches or whatever, don't abuse that. That's part of this arrogance. It's like the instructions given to Christian masters in the first century. Treat those under your authority with love and respect, knowing that you too are a servant to Christ. Or James warning, right? Don't, don't boast in your riches. Like you're, like you're like that flower in the field. Right? You know, boast in the fact that your riches are, are nothing. Boast in the humiliation that it will seem to be when you too die and take nothing with you. Don't be arrogant with your riches. Jesus was clearly the greatest, clearly the most important among his disciples, and yet he served them. If I, your master and Lord, serve you, you must also serve one another. That's humility rather than arrogance. Don't be arrogant. Wealth can also provide opportunities that a lack of wealth does not provide. Will you mock and belittle those who do not have access to those opportunities? Vacations, getaways, eating out, extra activities for your kids? Are you better than those who can't offer that? That's, that's the arrogance. The haughty rich can always find a way to flaunt their wealth in front of those who are not rich or not as rich. I remember the, the rich kids at the Catholic elementary school that I attended, we all wore uniforms, same uniforms, but the uniforms didn't dictate what shoes you could wear. So the one factor that was different among us was used to flaunt wealth. The rich kids had the, the better shoes that their rich parents had bought them. It's wrong. And it's funny when it comes to kids, but I mean adults, we would never do that. Clothes, devices. Oh, your, your phone is only the number six or seven or eight. I have number 143. It's the size of a small tractor trailer. But I understand if you can't afford that one yet. Clothes, devices, cars, houses, on and on and on. Christian adults can also be guilty of this same sin, but we must not be. If you are rich, don't flaunt it. Don't expect or demand or accept special treatment among the body because of your money. Don't expect that. I should be treated better. What my income is, what my authority is at work, or what my offerings are. Well, the elders should know that, and Peter should answer my phone faster. I don't know what you give. Uh, Jeremy is our financial secretary. He's the only one who knows what the giving is. I'm thankful to not, because I don't trust my own heart to not be able to look and answer the phone quicker, because, oh, that person, their giving last week was higher than this other person. Right? I'm going to guard myself against that. But don't, don't expect that. Don't demand it. Don't accept it. Power and position in the world do not equal authority in the church. 
The thinking of, I give more so I should be treated special, that, or any other type of arrogance, it does not belong in the household of God. Like we talked about a few weeks ago, slaves and masters in the body are equal, even if they're not equal outside of the body. Don't be arrogant. How do you honor Christ while rich? Don't misplace your confidence. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Set your hope, not on the uncertainty of riches. Hope is expecting something with confidence. Think hope, think confidence. And without confidence, and a good reason for that confidence, that's important. Without, a good, without confidence that's, that's well-informed, all you're left with is just sort of a wish. Might as well wish upon a star at that point. Maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. If it does, it has nothing to do with the star. Sorry, Peter Pan. Like we saw earlier, there is a tendency among the rich to depend on those riches. I have what I need, so I don't need anyone or anything else. A tendency among the rich to depend on those riches, to be confident of good things in life because of what you own. To depend on your possessions for a safe, comfortable, controlled future. I, I, I've got this. Why do I have this? Because of my riches. I know that I'm good today and tomorrow and next week and next month because I have these possessions, I have these plans, I have this income, I have these things saved. But are riches a good foundation for hope? Right? Hope is, is confidence with a good reason. So you can be confident in something, but not have a good reason for it. That's not good hope, right? Are riches a good foundation for hope? Are they as certain as we think? Are they a good source of confidence? What do you think? Absolutely not. Look throughout the history of their own country or any aspect of of economics. Ask the stockbrokers in the just before the Great Depression and the stock market crash. Ask, ask them before and ask them after um, if riches are reliable. Riches can be, but they come and they go. They can be stolen. They can rust. They can be moth-eaten. They can decrease in value. They can go out of style. Uh, you could invest in Beanie Babies. It's a sure thing 25 years ago. And if you did, sorry, because that I don't think you can sell those at yard sales anymore. Like you have to sneak them in the bag. And if somebody finds it, they're like, I, don't, I already have a hundred of these. I don't need this. Or uh, fidget spinners. That was a big flash in the pan. That went, that went quick. Even if your investments are sure things and inflation proof and backed by insurance policies against theft, even if your wealth is 100% secure, it's not achievable, but even if it was It is still only connected to this world, this present age. We brought nothing into the world, Paul just wrote, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Not a penny of your fortune will enter heaven with you. Not a single sock of your wardrobe. And apparently socks are a big fashion thing now. I don't know how that happened. But not a single sock of your wardrobe will come with you. Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos will enter eternity with the same number of possessions as you and me. Riches are 
<coughs> excuse me, riches are uncertain, and therefore they are an unreliable foundation for hope. So don't misplace your confidence by setting your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Instead, set your hope on God. He is the only proper source of hope or confidence. God's faithfulness and God's power make him the opposite of uncertainty. He knows all things, and the promises that he has made are motivated by his free grace. So him fulfilling his promises to us is not dependent on us. God will powerfully, perfectly fulfill all of his promises. We read throughout scripture, God has always been true to his word, fulfilling his promises, and he will continue to be faithful to us as well. And if you say, like, well, where, where's the certainty of that hope? You want me to have confidence in God? Like, but isn't that unproven? And we'd say, no, it's not, right? Millennia of promises made and promises kept. He who has been faithful thus far to far more impossible promises will be faithful to us. So that is the definition of certainty. It is the only sure thing that God will be faithful to fulfill his promises to us. There are two lies that Paul addresses as he calls on the rich in this world to set their hope on God rather than the uncertainty of riches. The first lie, possessions will bring me ultimate joy. The second lie is that God wants me to be miserable. Does anyone believe these lies? (laughs) Absolutely. Throughout the world, people believe these lies. Are they new, modern lies? No. They are, I'd say, second to oldest lies. Look at that beautiful piece of fruit. Doesn't that look delicious? That fruit, that's exactly what you've been looking for. And that fruit, that will bring you ultimate joy and satisfaction. That's probably why God told you not to eat it, because he wants you to be miserable. He knows that the fruit will make you perfectly happy, which is why he doesn't want you to have it, because God isn't good. Second oldest lie. I'd probably say the first is when Satan thought, it's like, oh, I can be like God. Lie. Second lie. <laughs> this fruit, this possession will be the source of ultimate joy. And God doesn't want you to have it because God wants you to be miserable. We say it a little differently. New clothes, a new phone, new toys, new car, a new house, unending vacations. These things are what I need. And once I have them, finally, I would be happy once and for all. It's a lie. Have you ever, think about this, have you ever, ever, children, are you listening? Y'all get birthday presents, Christmas presents, mid-July presents. Maybe you guys do that Christmas and July thing. I don't. Have you ever gotten a present, a gift, anything that left you never wanting something more or something different? Did that doll or Lego set or iPhone or house or cruise 
or whatever. Did it ever leave? You'd be like, ha, you know what? That's, that was it. Whew. Done. Satisfied. Forever. Never need another thing. None of you have gotten that. We, parents, we all know, right? The Lego set's boring inside of five seconds after it's been completed, <laughs> right? The doll ends up in the corner filling our house, filling our house. So many dolls, so many stuffed animals. But they're all really important when you want to throw them away, but I don't know how that fits in. Why, why did we never get something that really fully scratched the itch? It's because possessions cannot satisfy us. They cannot bring us ultimate joy. It wasn't just that that one wasn't as great as you thought it would be. It's that it can't do that. It, it cannot, no thing, no person on this earth, no experience, no object can ever actually satisfy and bring you ultimate joy. So when we look to any of those things that would fall under that category of, of riches or possessions, when we look to them as our source of hope, we will end up perpetually disappointed and dissatisfied or discontent. This is abusing the things of earth to look to possessions as an ultimate source of joy. That is, that is abusing creation. However, things, hold, things you can hold, experiences you can have, they can bring us joy. And they're meant to. And they're meant to be enjoyed. Right? Like keep, if you haven't been here through all these, there are a couple sermons that are backing me up from other passages that you might need to listen to from chapter four and earlier in chapter six. If things and experiences weren't meant to bring us joy, meant to be enjoyed, why would food and drink taste good? Why would water be refreshing to us on a hot day and fun to swim in? Why is rocking in a hammock so wonderful? If things weren't meant to be enjoyed, why is it exciting for our family to be moving into our new house? Because all these things are there because God is good. God is good. And in being good, he gives good gifts. God is good, and do you see it in the text? God, how does it describe him? Who richly provides us with everything to what? End of verse 17. God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So it's right here in front of us. And in a sense, we experience it, yet the lie persists that counters it. The lie that says, God wants me to be miserable. So many people ignore God's gifts as gifts from God. They ignore that they have come from him. We think of things, uh, the things that we have as that which we have earned or that we deserve this is mine by right, not by gift. But they are gifts from God. What do you have that you have not received? The answer to that question is nothing. You have nothing that you have not received from others and from God. Then, so people ignore that, reject that. And as they start to maybe bring that out, okay, maybe God has some say. When God reveals his will, and, his, and the boundaries that he has designed for properly enjoying his gifts, because God, who has given us all things richly to enjoy, has set boundaries 
on the enjoyment of those things, rules that must be followed. And so when God reveals his will, people then despise him and call him cruel and miserly or a cosmic killjoy who doesn't want you to have any fun. And that's the source of this lie. So God doesn't want anybody to have any fun. God doesn't want anyone to have any pleasure. God doesn't want anyone to have any enjoyment. Again, we must ask, where did those concepts come from? Where did fun come from? Pleasure, enjoyment. Where did they come from? They came from God, the one who created all things and who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So there must be a way to have riches and to enjoy riches without setting our hope on the uncertainty of riches, without viewing riches as the source of ultimate joy. And a way to enjoy them, to enjoy them, to have them with joy, recognizing that God did not bring those things into existence to make us miserable. This text, I I mentioned already, should remind us of 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 and 5. Everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. It's made holy by the word of God and prayer. And from that text, I exhorted you to love the giver, God. Love the giver over the gift. Better yet, to love the giver through or while enjoying his gifts, right? Don't love the gift over the giver. It's idolatry, okay? That's the uncertainty of riches that you're setting your hope on. Love the giver over the gift, but then again, it's not just like, oh, I love God, so I, but, but I don't like water. It's not refreshing because God is, God is the only one who's refreshing, so water does nothing for me. And that hammock, it's not... I don't like hammocks because I love Jesus, right? And so it's like that view, I don't enjoy the view, even though it took my breath away, that was wrong because only God should take my breath away. It's like God's standing here having given you those things to be like, it's not an either or. It's a both and. Enjoying loving God through enjoying his gifts because he's a giving, good, generous father, And he delights in his children, delighting in his gifts, in loving him. And I love how Paul describes God as he puts him forth as a contrast to uncertain riches. God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Almost every time like the rich is used in scripture, it's almost always negative. Or riches, I think it is. It's almost always negative. And yet Paul uses the same word. Be like, but you know who else is rich? God is rich. And God richly, generously, lavishly provides us with everything to enjoy. So he's contrasting our riches in this present age with God's eternal riches seen in his generous provision to his creatures. God is rich in mercy. God is rich in glory in Christ Jesus. God owns everything. As you consider how to honor Christ while rich, remember that God is the source of hope and God is the source of joy, not riches. So don't misplace your confidence. How else do we honor Christ while rich? We, we grow in godliness. Paul writes, charge them to do good. Keeping that kind of deflating aspects from 17 to 18. Charge them to do good, to be rich in good works. 
always thankful for, for Paul's writing. You know, Paul, Paul lays down, don't do this, but he never, he never stops. And God's wisdom and kindness is every don't in Paul is uh, replaced with a do. Right? Every negative, he also gives the positive side of that. We talked about that. It's not a full aspect of repentance. So far, he's charged or commanded the rich not to be haughty, not to hope in the uncertainty of riches. And his next commands are positive. Answering what I think are inevitable questions from Christians who are rich in this present age. Okay, don't be arrogant. Makes sense. Like, don't put my hope on riches. Got it. But then the question still remains, all right, Paul, what am I supposed to do? Like, what do I do with this stuff? How do I act? How do I live? So he answers that. At first, since growing in godliness, if you are rich, you are to do good. They are to do good. This verb is... Uh, in this form, is found only one other time in the New Testament. It's in Acts chapter 14, verse 17. And this is what Paul says, how Paul uses it, speaking to the crowd that's trying to worship him as if he was Zeus or Hermes. I don't remember which one it was. He says this, God has given witness of his existence to humanity by doing good. God does good. And what does that look like? How has he done good? That's kind of weird. You done good. That sort of sounds like bad, bad grammar. Maybe. How has God done good to his creatures? By giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and with gladness. And we can be reminded, as Jesus said, that rain doesn't just fall on the righteous. It doesn't just fall on his children. It falls on his enemies as well. God has done good. God has blessed others, even the undeserving, even his enemies. And this responsibility easily transfers over to believers. God does good. We are to do good. God blesses the undeserving, even his enemies. We are to do good, blessing others, even our enemies. So we transfer rich and poor believers. Jesus has commanded us to love, to do good to our neighbors, and even to love do good to our enemies. And Paul elaborates on this, saying that the rich in possessions must also be rich, you see, rich in good works. Don't just be rich in possessions. Be rich in good works. And let's keep our definitions consistent. To be rich is not to be lacking in something. Not to be deficient, not to do the bare minimum, right? We didn't say it's not enough, so it can't be no good works. It can't just be, uh, I have just enough, so it shouldn't be do just enough good works. Like have an abundance of stuff, that's riches. So how much good works are you supposed to do? An abundance. Don't be stingy with good works. Do good works to what might seem like an excess, we are to live out an excess of good works if we're going to honor Christ while we're rich. At first glance, we might think this means go out of the world with your wealth and do good deeds with it. Make donations, give to the poor, build hospitals, buy computers for underprivileged schools. And while that may be part of what he is nudging them toward, I don't think that that's Paul's primary point. He's not saying it's, it's not good. Sorry, Paul is not saying just do good stuff with your money. 
that doesn't get the point across. It's not just do good stuff with your money because even greedy unbelievers can do that. And they do all the time. And then they make sure that their name is on the side of the building or emblazoned or branded on all of those computers so that everybody knows how good they are. This isn't just a call, do good stuff with your money. It's a call to be sanctified, to be changed, to live out the good works that God has prepared beforehand for all his children to walk in. And having a long list of charitable contributions does not equal godliness. I don't care what the donation is. I don't care if your, your statement of giving says Risen King Church at the top or anything else, or you have a hundred of them. That doesn't equal godliness. Never has, never will. It can equal vanity and pride and arrogance where we say, look at all the good I've done. That's not good works. Good works are the fruit of hearts transformed by the Holy Spirit that love God and love their neighbors. That fruit shows in thinking others as more significant than yourself, making yourself the servant of all, saying no to your sinful flesh and yes to the Holy Spirit in thought, word, and deed. These are things that end up being visible to other people as your light shines before them that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. See your what? See your good works because you're rich in them. And it's such a frequent part of your life as the Holy Spirit works through you that it, you can't hide it even though you probably would like to in humility. It just it can't be contained because the Lord just continues to work through you. Doing good, being rich in good works, is growing in godliness or God-likeness. Not you don't become God, but we Christians are being, in, being changed, changed into the image of Christ. We are to reflect God in our lives. So we serve as Christ has served us, which comes first. Christ serves us, we serve us others. We forgive as God has forgiven us. We show mercy as God has shown us mercy. And we grow in generosity as God is generous to us and to all his creatures. So as God's child, you are to live out God's generosity. You write stuff down. Write that one down. Live out God's generosity. Live out, we could say live out God's love. We could say live out God's forgiveness. We could live out God's mercy. Live out God's goodness. Live out God's generosity if you're going to honor Christ while rich. And as God is generous, Paul calls us to be generous. That's the next point. Honoring Christ while rich requires us to be generous and ready to share. Charge them to be generous and ready to share. What comes to your mind when you hear the word generosity or sharing? Or maybe we could ask, who comes to your mind when you hear the word generous or you think of the idea of sharing? When I think of generosity, I I think of giving gifts to bless others or to meet their needs. Those who have done that to me, I think of sharing a meal, making sure someone else gets the better portion. Boy, that's... 
That's the hard one, isn't it? Love a rule that Leanne and her brother, uh, their family had growing up. Like one of them cut the cake and the other chose the first slice. It's like get measuring tools out for that, you know, perfect equality. So always think of that. Even I, you know, I love Leanne more than I love any of you. No offense. You can be offended if you want to. It's just true. And so then when we have two pieces of, of cake that just look at like, oh, I really love Leanne. It's like, ooh, but I really love cheesecake. Whew, Holy Spirit's at work. I think of making sure somebody else gets the better portion in generosity. I think of paying for someone else's meal out of kindness rather than obligation. Just simple little things. I think of tipping my waiter or waitress well rather than stiffing them even if my food did take a long time to come out of the kitchen. Well, they don't deserve that. Well, you don't either. Are you going to be generous and ready to share? Or are you going to get that point across when they've been having a hard day? I'm stingy. I'm greedy in my heart, not just with cheesecake, just with like everything. My flesh is so early Ebenezer Scrooge. More for me, less for you. Just give it to me. <laughs> I want more. I want it all. Then the Holy Spirit just taps me on the shoulder metaphorically and whispers, still metaphorically, how have you been treated by God and by others? Have people been stingy to you? And the answer to that is a clear no. God's not been stingy to me. He gave me life and breath and everything else, and that everything is huge. I hear the words of Jesus quoted by Paul, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And I weigh that. Like, well, is it? Like, well, what's truth? (laughs) Not what my feelings are. And I have a long way to go, but I know that God is changing me to be generous as he is generous. And even if I don't know what the needs are, maybe you're like, oh, I want to be generous. I want to meet needs. I want to bless. But how do I do that? Like, who, who has the needs? Well, maybe, maybe your eyes and ears have been closed to those things. Maybe it hasn't. Maybe you just don't know or it hasn't been communicated. So what else does Paul say? You know, do, do good. Be generous. Be ready to share. So if you don't know what the needs are or there aren't any pressing needs that anybody around you has right now, maybe that is the case. Are you ready to share? Like, is it, is it built in? You're like, when the need arises, I'm just, I'm jumping. I'm ready to act on it. I'm ready. I'm eager to share. I want to plan for it. I want to be eager to help others out. And I do. And then my flesh also says, yeah, but, you know, keep your own stuff too. Like, ah, wretched man that I am will deliver me. Christ, be generous and ready to share. So how about you? You know, are you, are you ready to share what you have? Or are you greedy to keep it all to yourself? I've heard people describe enjoying God's gifts without loving or worshiping them as as holding them in in an open hand rather than grasping it and clutching it to your chest so that no one will take it. So God won't take it, right? Like, have these things, I enjoy them. Open hand or closed hand, and it's like, no, no, you can't have that. Get away from me, right? So what's your attitude on those type of things? What are you more like with your possessions? Open, closed, and clutching? You might be asking yourself, well, who am I supposed to be generous toward? There's a lot of people. Who should I prioritize when it comes to sharing? And I think Paul's instructions to the Galatian church, those instructions are helpful here, where he says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And there are other principles outlined in 1 Timothy 
the principle of family first. Family takes care of family, and that starts off physically. So we have an obligation to our physical family, our spouses, our children, our parents, right? Do you remember, like, a man who does not take care of a widow who's part of his family is worse than an unbeliever? It's like even the Gentiles get that? And you're going to let mom or mother-in-law or grandma, you're going to let her starve while you grow fat? Like, that's, that's terrible. That's pathetic. <laughs> that's like worse than worldly. So we have an obligation to our physical family first, must provide for them. We also have obligations to our spiritual family, brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers here at Risen King. So if we were to go around the room, we're not. If we were, I can name a number of you that have been generous and shared with Leanne and me and and our kids. I hope that some of you have examples of when we've been generous to you. So what about you? We gave those testimonies. Are there examples? Maybe they would have been forgotten. Maybe they've been overlooked. God knows when you've been generous, even if nobody else recognized it. But would there be any examples among this body of blessing and meeting needs because you are honoring Christ while rich by being generous and ready to share? It may be like, well, that sounds really arrogant. I really want my name to have been mentioned. It can be. It can be arrogant to to do that, but not necessarily, right? To have been a known blessing to someone else and being thankful for that and your name being specifically mentioned to God in gratitude is a biblical concept. Paul, it's that, that's the picture that Paul puts in front of the Corinthians when he was calling on them to give generously to the needs of other Christians outside of their church, specifically the needs that had arisen in Jerusalem. And here's what he says will take place. He says, the ministry of this service, which was giving of money, okay, very specific what he's talking about. The ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, by receiving that gift, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So he preached a whole sermon on this a few years ago, right? Glorifying God through generous giving because when the gift is given and the gift is received, the believers who receive that give thanks to God on behalf of the giver, God is glorified. Not just you're glorified. God worked in them. They gave to me. So God gave to me through them. Thankful for them. Thankful to God. Win-win right? Everybody's glorifying God in this scenario. Be generous. Be ready to share. And then finally, honoring Christ while rich, develop an eternal perspective. He says, thus, in doing these things, thus, storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul goes back to this idea of of there's the present age and there's the future There are riches right now, and there are riches for eternity. And avoiding arrogance and misplaced confidence while also doing good, being rich in good works, being generous and ready to share, all of those things are like investments made for eternity. 
laying a foundation of good things for the future, treasure for them. Jesus taught on this eternal perspective. I, I, if you're familiar with scripture, as, as things are probably jumping out from different phrases that I've said that remind you when Christ said, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Neither moth nor rust destroys. Thieves do not break in and steal. Where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. And then later, another Luke's account of this. Fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. You can live for this short, temporary life, or you can live for that future, eternal life. You can store up treasures on earth or you can store up treasures in heaven. You don't get to do both. It's not like diversified investments. It's like I got this part of my portfolio, the, the earthly part, and I've got my, the heavenly part, and I like both. You either love God or you love money. And your choice, earth or heaven, shows where your heart truly lies, where your life truly lies. Where your heart lies, that is where your life is. So are you living for this life as if this is all there is? Don't be so foolish. This life is not all that there is. There is a life to come. A life that Paul describes here is that which is truly life. A life to come that is more significant. You could almost say more real than this life. That's not strictly speaking accurate, but it kind of gets me closer to it. It's like the vapor that goes away versus the life that continues on. The comparison between this life and that life is kind of like playing a board game versus actually living. And some of you, like me, probably take board games a little bit too seriously and really eagerly want to accumulate a bunch of stuff, monies, whether it's like the uh, houses and hotels for in Monopoly or property and resources, if we're talking like settlers of Catan, right? Just got to build all this stuff up. And when the game's going really, really well, it's like I never want it to end. You know, 10 points in Settlers. It's like that was so fast. Like I was winning. Like I'm winning. I want to win forever. I want to own all the resources. It's like we got to put the game away. Honey, like you won. It's over. We got to go to bed. No, my dominance has ended. That which I was living for has shown to be empty. But do you see the comparison? Like you have the board game. Then you have all of life. And, you know, truth be told, if you're a jerk in the board game, you might be a jerk in all of life. Uh, it's a little tiny picture of what the little thing that is to the long thing that, that it's truly life. Life isn't a game. There are eternal consequences. There is an age to come. Are you living for now? That's going to be done. Are you living for forever? Much of what passes as life on this earth is not truly life at all from the standpoint of eternity. It's over-absorption into the everyday. Ask it a hundred times. Ask it a hundred and one times. Are you going to live for now? Or are you going to live for eternity? Are you going to chase and try to catch and take hold of that which is truly life? Or are you going to chase after and miss a cheap temporary 
alternative. To close, let me read from 2 Corinthians 8. May this truth surround us in all our thinking about money and riches and possessions and generosity. Hear this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich forever. Father, thank you for you are, you are generous physically, you are generous spiritually. You have given us so much, all things richly, given us all things to enjoy, and you have given us Christ to redeem our sinful souls. You've given us a home and a treasure in the heavenly places that will not fail, will not fail forever. Please give us wisdom by your spirit to uh, see what is truly life to chase after that and teach us to honor Christ with our riches. Bless our time at your table as we worship the one who, uh, though he was rich, yet for our sake became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. Amen. We are moving into our, our time at, uh, at the Lord's table. Uh, those of you who have been made rich in Christ, not possessions rich, forever rich, spiritually rich. All things in the heavenly places are yours in Christ Jesus because by faith you have turned from your sin and you have received forgiveness. You live in his grace, which you do not deserve. Christ calls us to come to his table uh, to be reminded, to receive and to to worship the fact that that he gave, he didn't just give up riches. He gave up his life for us and for our salvation. You don't deserve the house or car bank account that you have. You don't deserve any of those things. Neither do I. But how much infinitely more do we not deserve salvation in Jesus Christ? So if you're like, yep, I deserve the riches and I deserve forgiveness, better to stay in your seat. You, You have some thinking that you need to do. But if you recognize your own sinfulness, you have, you've come to Christ with that, then, then come, receive again with just empty hands, receive grace. May that, may that remind us that, that he who gave us spiritually all things has also given us physically all things. And he who made it possible for us to be rich in that way um, has given us an opportunity to, to live that out. Right? So may this be an act of worship for us. If you're not a follower of Jesus, not certain of your forgiveness. Maybe it's because you're, you're trusting in your own righteousness, right? If you, if you think you're good enough that you don't need Jesus, that you're lost. Um, you're not going to heaven. You're not forgiven. And, and this table is, is not for you in that instance. But I just want to remind you that you can be forgiven. And not because of works of righteousness that you have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us. So if you are not a follower of Christ, he gave his life in our place, took the punishment that our sins deserve, rose in victory, and is coming back for us to bring us to the age to come with those forever 
riches. It's the offer of the gospel. It's offered to you. Think about that as you watch a parade of people who are not self-righteous, but who have despaired of all of their own righteousness and have received the righteousness of Jesus. And our prayer is that you too would receive that gift because it is offered to you in Christ.